It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Saeed Barizuddin, founder and CEO of Plasmodic Diagnostics, who are working to commercialize a disruptive, non-invasive, and ultra-sensitive technology in the infectious disease space. Syed's bachelor degree and work experience have given him the expertise in electronics engineering, power systems, telecommunication engineering, and control systems. His master's degree research embedded his expertise on nanotechnology and chemical engineering, and his doctorate education and subsequent work experience provided experience in the biomedical engineering, microbiology, optics, diagnostic systems fields. Syed knows how important and meaningful partnerships can be, be with the industry partners or government agencies. His experience over the years and the acquired nuances in the interactions and engagement with corporations, industry partners, and government agencies have provided huge advantages for his startups to succeed. Born in Hyderabad, India, Syed moved to the United States more than two decades ago and resides in Columbia, Missouri. He says that the reason for staying there beyond his work are the courteous drivers and people that kindly hold open the doors for others. Saeed Barizuddin, welcome into the corner office. Thank you so much, Brand. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Uh, it's great to have you here. And, you know, you're a long line of uh, immigrant CEOs to this country that we welcome on the podcast. And uh, I always get so much joy learning about growing up in another country and how that were, were, was formative years for where you are today. So uh, we always like to start in the beginning. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Uh, well, I come from a place called Hyderabad, uh, in India. It's uh, somewhere between central and south. I mean, Hyderabad is pretty famous on the IT map. There are a lot of uh, multinational companies uh, that have been established there over the last, I would say, three decades. Yeah. Was it that uh, way when you were growing up or was Hyderabad more of a, a rural location at that time? Hyderabad was a princely state, mm -hmm. uh, but for some reason, uh, the state, I mean, the education in the state was of prime importance uh, since the uh, post-independence era. And we had some very good universities. So it churned out a lot of talent, uh, especially uh, late 70s, early 80s. And then it really picked, it, picked up during the 90s and so forth. So the early entrance to Microsoft and the 
like you know similar uh, tech companies uh, and you see a lot of uh, ceos from my state i mean i guess at least two three in the top uh, leading tech companies of the world right now are from the state i come from actually the city i come from and my sister's school actually so awesome. uh, so we have a pretty good uh, educational system down there were your parents academics were they involved in the universities there or, or if not what did your mom and dad do my dad was a civil engineer by profession uh, and he he traveled uh, overseas quite a bit when i was young uh and that time there was quite a uh, bit of uh, you know petro dollar boom that is what they called right. so uh, there was a lot of uh, construction going on so he was uh, involved in that then uh, when i grew up and when i was kind of uh, in my real formative years he decided that uh, uh probably he needed uh, i needed more supervision uh, not that i was a bad kid or whatever but so when i came in ninth grade he made it a point to, to come back home so that you know he could help me guide me and he really did a good job, you know and i'm really thankful for all that he did for me brothers and sisters yeah two brothers two brother. uh, younger younger guys you yeah. the eldest right i'm the eldest yeah my mom was stay at home did, did she have a career as well no my mom uh was a housewife uh, Now, well, we we were kind of a little uh, agriculturist in a way that we had some uh, ancestral lands. Right. So my mom kind of took care of it with my dad. But after my dad passed away, uh, she's the main person who takes care of it. So despite being a housewife uh, and uh, not having a college degree, she I would think she's pretty dynamic uh, <laughs> in that she can you know I mean she can. she really knows the ins and outs of a lot of departments a lot of people and stuff yeah. like that yeah. so yeah that helps that takes care of our lands uh, pretty well even today some of the uh, early influencing that both mom and dad had on you as a kid and the lessons learned or any things that were stressed to you as being important growing up i mean it's interesting that uh, i was raised by my grandparents and the reason being i was the first grand on both the paternal and the maternal sides uh so i mean uh, in fact uh, i went to my parents house uh, uh, around 10th grade you know when my dad came back so That's so my, fairly common in in south asian culture is it not i, I know in, in you know chinese it, culture that's also common that grandparents do get involved very early on in the raising children it is it is um, uh, there are the co- the family concept is a close knit family so you know the uncles and aunts and stuff so if you would ask me to name uh, how many brothers i would say you know maybe like 25 brothers and that would surprise you right so there is a very dis- a very blur line between your own brothers and uh, your cousins so we we generally uh, don't use the word cousin as often as uh, it should be or you know as it is used so you actually refer to your cousins as brothers and sisters yeah yeah i i would yeah i mean even they call me brother right i mean they would say baris bhai so yeah wow. so that is how it is yeah and so you're very close to your grandparents in 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 you know were were they full time raising you 
as a child, or were your grandparents working as well during those years? Um, my grandfather was uh, a government servant. He was okay. employed by the state. My mother was, my grandma was a housewife. Okay. But yeah, I mean, uh, there is, I mean, it wouldn't be a, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a stretch if I said like they were my first parents. Okay. I mean, they did everything. And I think what I am today and my personality was molded by them. I mean, I guess the teens from like say 12 to 15, 16, those are the real formative years. And so uh, I got ready-made for my parents. That is what I generally tell them, you know, when I was all like incubated and it was a point of care system kind of a deal. They didn't have to kind of put me together. They got a ready-made piece from my grandparents. I love it. And, and were there blood cousins or what you would call brothers and, and sisters that also were raised at the same time by your grandparents? Or were you the only one uh, in that household? I mean, if, uh, yeah, I mean, my, the house of my grandparents, it was a pretty big house. I mean, it had 20 plus rooms or whatever. Uh, so, uh, I mean, the visit from... It was a hub, basically, right? It was like a junction. Everybody dropped by every day there. If somebody was hungry, they dropped by. Somebody was tired and they were close to that house, they dropped by. And if somebody didn't drop by, my grandfather would send somebody and say, why didn't you guys come today? So that was great. You lived there full time for many years. Were there there others, you know, quote unquote, brothers and sisters that also lived there full time that were, you know, kind of cousins or or, related? I mean... My uncles, like my mother's brothers, were unmarried when I was like young and stuff. So they were living there, and uh, I was considered an extension of them basically. So they were kind of going to college and they were in their, uh, you know, probably 20s and stuff. So they were finishing college, and that is how it worked out. Yeah, fantastic. So speaking of school, were you a good student in secondary school? I guess I started as a very good student because like to get into the school, I think that was the best school in the state and probably the top two, three schools in the country. Uh, As I was telling earlier, like uh, education was the most important thing for my dad. Uh, So he put in all his effort, effort to send me to the best school he could. So from thousands of students, they were just uh, taking six, 60 students. And so it, in India, there is, all, uh, there is competition for everything. I mean, uh, you know, to, just to get a seat in a good school, you have to kind of write an entrance exam and go through a lot of hurdles. I guess that started well. But then uh, during the middle school and stuff, I was an average student. I don't want to think I was dumb or whatever, but my interests were a kind of, you know, uh, divided in sports and stuff. Okay. Uh, that led me to being a ho- hockey captain right. of school. Yeah. Hockey, not ice hockey. Not ice hockey. <laughs> right. No, not really. No. It, it was field hockey with a leather ball, not a puck. Uh, yeah. So uh, then I... I used to play chess. I played chess for my state. I played ping pong for my university. So uh, in some total, I was an average student, uh, uh, okay player. Yeah, so that that was it. You know, for, for a lot of our you know, domestic audience who perhaps haven't traveled much, 
um, part-time jobs really aren't something that you did right growing up. There, there was really no need to do so. Uh, the state provided, I guess, a lot of the education. Of course, you had to compete for that. But w- when did you first kind of start working? Was that during your university years or, or after you'd finished? I mean, in India, the concept is even till today, uh, it is assumed and parents take it as their responsibility to pay for the education of the kids until college and keep them at home. Uh, And even uh, post-education, even after getting married, the parents don't want the kids to leave. So uh, I didn't. I mean, I was fortunate enough. I I didn't work. I mean, everything was taken care of by my parents, basically my dad. And then, and then you went to uh, school in the U.S. for your master's and your in your PhD. So you completed your undergraduate degree in India, correct? I did here. Uh, yeah, I, I had I had uh, completed my undergrad in India, then came here for my master's and the grad school. And you've kind of been here ever since. Ever sure. since, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, what was the motivation around coming to do your final, you know, tertiary degrees here? Uh, was that quite common, you know, where you grew up, or? Did you have certain ambitions that led you to, to come overseas? Tell us a little bit about, you know, the seed for that, um, you know, as a teenager, 20-year-old, you know, finishing up his master's. Well, for a lot of people, like uh, a master's and a postgraduate degree is basic education from where I come from. Uh, so it is, it is both like it is educational as well as cultural so if you don't have a master's degree, then, you know, it, it, the the cultural or the social standing is, I mean, you aren't up to the mark, basically. Right. Right. So that leads into a lot of things wherein, you know, I mean, uh, even like marriages are arranged in India, right? So it's like a CV sent to the bride's or the groom's house and stuff like that. So uh, it is better to have a master's degree to be accepted as a potential bride or a groom. Yeah, right. And were, were you, uh, uh, did you have a arranged marriage as well? Uh, sort of, not. <laughs> okay. uh, in the sense, like, uh, I knew the uh, girl who I was getting married to. Uh, so then, then you know, it's like, it's a, it's a process that happens and your parents go and meet and then it goes on and then it works out and then the, a date is set and so on and so forth. Now, so did that happen before you came to the U.S. Or, or was that after you came and did your graduate studies here? It was almost at the same time. Okay. Yeah. And so your bride came with you then to the U.S.? Uh, my, my would-be wife was a physician. So uh, when we kind of came to get, when we came at around the same time, I was doing my uh, master's and she was doing her residency. So, right. yeah, it worked out okay. Cool. Great. And you, you know, were in academia for, for a number of years before you went to the private sector. Um, was that kind of your goal? Because uh, I know that you went to the University of Missouri in, in Columbia and then worked there for a good seven or eight years, I think, after you finished, correct? Right, right. Uh, you know what? I mean, I just wanted to finish my master's. Yeah. That, that is, that was the goal where I started. But the day I kind of graduated my master's, actually, even before that, when I had defended my thesis at that time, 
I mean, it felt like, you know, man, I didn't want to, I wanted to continue, let's say it that way. Uh, I was like, oh, I was feeling a little sad that, you know, man, oh, I finished my master's, now what? Uh, and then I go to my grad advisor and say, do you think uh, I should, uh, you know, work on my PhD? So she said, uh, yeah, sure, I mean, you, but uh, you know what, it's going to take a while and all that. I said, yeah, why not? So uh, that is how it happened. And the person was graduating and that project needed to be taken over by a new student. Yeah. And then I started to love it and the rest is history. <laughs> and so uh, I assume that you began working then while you did your PhD, is correct? So, so was that simultaneous? Were you working at the university while uh, working on your PhD? When you're a grad student, mostly uh, you do, I mean, you're a research, graduate research assistant. So you basically work on the research, uh, which is funded by the government agencies. Uh, In my case, I think my advisor had, I mean, she had a lot of uh, federal grants at that time from different federal agencies, and I was working on those. Got it. And so that funded your education as well as paid for your, your stay. Uh, yeah it's kind of a uh, stipend it's it's not much i guess when i when i was uh, when i started i was getting about thousand dollars or so per month sure yeah Yeah. substance living (laughs) exactly yeah the good news is missouri is relatively lower cost right than a lot of other places in the country it is yeah i mean uh, the gas used to be about 79 cents then yeah amazing so um, from there, um, and then I think you went on to Lincoln University after that, right? So, so you left the University of Missouri and then, and then went on to do, was it additional research work? It was, I mean, till now, honestly, I haven't kind of interviewed for a job. I have, it was just word of mouth that, you know, I, I found jobs uh, throughout my career. So after MU, then there were some projects going on there which were very closely aligned to uh, my field of work. So then uh, somebody introduced me to the person who who, who was the PI on those uh, projects. And uh, that is how I joined Lincoln. Yeah, cool. And you were there for a few years and then came back to MU, correct, after that? Right. Again, like I got an email from MU. Hey, I mean, you know, this is something you might be interested in. I mean, do you want to just come over to talk to us and see if you like it? Uh, because, I mean, uh, this place is a very, uh, the Columbia is about 135,000 people. Right. Uh, so when I came, I think it was about 60,000 people. Wow. So uh, having been here for uh, you know extended period of time, so, I mean, I can... Uh, look at a car in the Walmart parking lot and say, hey, I've seen this car before somewhere. So, you know, it's something like that. So, you know, everybody over here. So that is how it goes in small towns, I guess. And so tell us about then the the transition to to the private sector. So I I think it was with, was it uh, Liquid Carbonic? Is that where you had first gone to work uh, when you left the research field? Uh, Actually, I mean, you know, with all the research that uh, I was doing with different teams, uh, you know, on different campuses and stuff, uh, starting from my master's, we were able to develop technologies that uh, fortunately ended up 
getting a lot of patents for us. so i guess uh, we had filed for a lot of invention disclosures and then we were issued five patents uh, and i was inventor on a few of those and uh, i found one technology to be very very interesting uh, i don't know if it i found the technology to be interesting at that particular point in time but there was a little background to that that i wanted to i guess i wanted to be a doctor I like that and I started on that road but uh, uh, you know I was very I mean uh, dissections would creep me out I mean I couldn't handle opening the stomach of a rat and stuff right, right. so uh, anything that crawls kind of creeps me out you know so <laughs> so yeah, rats and lizards and everything else so that is when I changed from uh biology because in india after college you have to choose your uh, stream which way you are going your major basically that is decided post uh, sophomore year in high school so i think uh, i uh, then i had a little bit of background so i ended up and my expertise beca- became uh, diagnostics ultra sensitive uh, diagnostics and during my phd research i was working on uh research on alzheimers and parkinsons and desi- uh, and devices to basically uh, you know uh, have a clinical test which could detect device uh, alzheimers and parkinsons so that led me into that uh, field of uh, sensors and diagnostics yeah and then uh, how did it lead to and, and was was liquid carbonic the first company then that you worked for as you came out of the um, uh, research field no i mean i started the company by the name of plasmonic diagnostics okay and the reason being like you know i was i mean the the results of the research were extremely good and i thought there was a lot of potential in that technology and uh, i wanted to give it a shot at making a commercial product of uh, that technology that came out uh, in part because of my research out of university of missouri how did that first company go yeah i mean i incorporated a company here in colombia and then i wrote a few grants uh, generally that is the way most start startup goes uh, uh, you know uh you st- uh, you write proposals to national Sound- science Fi- foundation national institute of health you know department of defense and stuff like that and that is a stepping stone for most startups that come out of uh, the university research sure. and that is what happened in my case and i was funded uh, thankfully and uh, uh then we started to build on it people kind of came to know about our technology then that is how it progressed and now we are working to uh kind of uh, well we are not really close to launching a product but we are working towards that uh, so to answer your question so that is how i started the company and then again uh, you know i uh, vice chancellor uh, from mu of entrepreneurship he called me and said hey there is this company by the name of liquid carbonic and uh, you know and they have a vacancy for uh, to lead the company 
and uh, do you want to give it a shot you know when they were in middle of it and there was they required somebody immediately yeah. yeah so i had to kind of get in because the the projects had to be completed and so i spent a couple of years with that company to successfully finish uh, the projects that they had started and did you take the product that you developed with you with that or or did that get set aside no i mean uh, until i was uh, managing the other company full time uh this was being managed by somebody else i mean i was the founder but but now i'm back full time to liquid carbonic uh, sorry to the plasmonic diagnostics yeah cool and, and tell us a little bit about the company you know the the, the products specifically what they do and you know kind of your size and scope well uh, our company is right now a research and development company we are based out of columbia missouri and our niche uh, expertise are uh, ultra sensitive devices mm. so just to tell you i mean if you take covid i mean we all have been through some kind of testing wherein you give a oropharyngeal or a na- nasopharyngeal swab in the most uh, common form of uh, testing but what even before covid happened Uh, since 2015 we have been working on non invasive ultra sensitive detection mm. that is to say if you want to detect a de- disease you are trying to find a specimen which which didn't need to be procured uh, uh, invasively like blood you know we were trying on urine samples or sweat or interstitial fluid so imagine if covid could be tested using a urine sample you know that would have been much easier for almost everybody yes yes absolutely so th- that is what we are trying to do and the difficulty of for that is like blood has a lot of biomarkers and everything in there right you have proteins you have cells and what not so if you are going for detection then the easiest sample to collect is blood but in something like urine and sweat that same amount of biomarker is in very very small quantities mm-hmm. so then you need a technology which is very very sensitive because the amount of the content of biomarker is really small so it is basically trying to find a needle in a haystack so, yeah. so, uh, so you're the, developing the testing equipment that allows hopefully will allow us to do that yeah I mean we have done some clinical studies uh, uh we started with uh, biomarkers for tuberculosis mm-hmm. and we were able to detect uh, up to single molecules on the lower end uh, of the detection spectrum mm-hmm. uh, so uh, the 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 sensitivity is femtogram per ml that is 10 to the power of uh, minus 15 Uh, milligrams so that is almost like very very sensitive yeah, yeah, and uh, how many employees today it, it varies with the project right so anywhere from 10 to 20 right uh, and when we get the money because we are still in that phase of a startup right sure. so as we don't i mean as the projects come in and I, i work with a lot of universities and we subcontract with the universities 
because you know i mean that that is because this is such crucial and important uh, technology uh, the people who work at the universities are kind of experts on the particular areas that we uh, sublet to them and uh, then we are confident of the results and the reports that we get and since colombia luckily has uh, you know a big campus here so there's a lot of help in that so then we hire people at the university and give them the subcontract right. are they mostly research scientists then the folks that you're hiring or or do you have also commercialization folks at this stage or is it still very much at the research stage in, in development of the products i mean uh, people who we work with are mostly you know at least masters but mostly phd and postdoc level because uh teaching somebody uh, this is kind of difficult because it is a niche area and uh, there's a lot of uh, background that is required to understand the different aspects of the research mm-hmm. uh, but in this area as well to answer your question about business i mean when i started out i was a academic and researcher here but over the last 7 8 years i have uh, kind of you know gained a quite a bit of experience but on our uh, in our company and on the board we have on an, and the advisory uh, team we have very good people from the business side a lot of people from silicon valley a lot of people from the state uh, who were who have a lot of experience so yeah it is a pretty well balanced team and we, and also that we work in the in the in, in the infectious disease space we have people in europe in india in africa that we work with so it is not just one team it is like multiple teams working at the same time to reach the reach a goal And, and are you selling any products yet, um, or is it still? Are, are they still under development? They are still under development, uh, but hopefully we are getting to that stage. Uh, I mean, internally we have we had marked uh, as our research into six phases, mm-hmm. and we have completed five of them, and we are working on the final one, and uh, hopefully. we believe in like 2 years time we should have some kind of product and can you tell us what you think that product will be or is that uh, sensitive and confidential <laughs> no i mean i can definitely tell you our focus is on a point of care system again okay. uh, and because i mean we envision it to work at this way you go to a, a clinician's office on a regular trip uh and you just when you visit and if you are being tested for that particular infectious disease or you know if we expand to some other biomarker uh, be as it may uh, you give the urine sample just sit in the uh, in the visit room for about 30 minutes in some cases maybe 45 and at least you will get the screening result so firstly you will not need to give a blood sample and you don't have to wait for two days or three days to get a result that's going to be great and and uh, what will we will it be focused on a specific disease like tb or polio or or will it be you know um a broad 
type of uh, a test that you can use for, for anything, for COVID or anything else? We are starting with the tuberculosis. Yeah. And this is a platform technology, so it can be transferred to any biomarker. Yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, you know, having a portfolio takes time. You have to start with a particular product, kind of get a foothold in the market. And then the next uh, products come out pretty fast. The first one is the most difficult because you have to have everything lined up before you can really put it out there. Fantastic. Wow. Exciting times ahead. Wonderful. I, yeah, that is the hope. How have you kind of made that transition? I mean, I mean, I'm sure you're still doing a lot of research. You're still involved in a lot of that. But tell us about kind of the transition from being kind of a research scientist, doing the work, to, to leading the team. What, what's been the biggest change for you? Well, uh, let's see. I mean, I guess it's like uh, first you, you have to ha- have that desire to, you know, take that leap because you have to put everything on the line at that point in time where you want to have a startup company because you don't honestly you don't really have a regular income at that time right i mean if we're if you had a job then you know that this is what is it is going to be like but when you have a startup it is everything that you have to figure out and it's not an easy thing So it is not just the research. The more difficult part and the important part is how to keep it moving. And from what my from my experience, unless people believe that they can make money out of you, you don't get money. (laughs) It's very true, right? You know. So I mean, for them to give you money, they they have to think that, oh, I'm going to make a big chunk of money out of this guy or this company or what have you. So, and that is, and on the other side of it, in the federal government where you write proposals and stuff, even there is a very, very stiff competition. So for every 100 proposals that the companies or entities submit, about 4% of them get funded. Only 4%. Somewhere there, yeah, four to five percent. That's it, and it's not like the proposals are bad. You know, I mean, everybody puts in a lot of effort and a lot of time, and it takes almost three to six months to write a proposal. Mm. And then after a month or two, you hear, "Oh, we are sorry, you have not been funded." <laughs> so taking that jolt uh, is the main learning curve for any startup. Uh, and and I think it is not for the faint of heart either. I mean, you would think like, I, I'm sure every guy and every researcher who gets into this field thinks, you know, it's an amazing technology and I'm going to make a billion dollar in the next five, ten years. Uh, that is the spirit you start with, but the reality really catches up with you soon. And uh, then you realize it's not as easy as, as it sounds. And, uh, but that is where the rubber meets the road. And for the fortunate few who kind of still want to pursue that path, uh, if they are lucky, they will be real successful. Yeah, 
how do you go about making bets on the people you invest in and hire to, to, to join you there at uh, Plasma and Diagnostics? How do you select the scientists? Because there's got, got to be a, a large field right, of people that you can... I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting that you ask me that question. I let go of a $800,000 project literally in the last month because I couldn't find the person I wanted to work on it. Wow. wow. So you had to literally say no. Because I, I, well, uh, being honest to you, I, I haven't answered to them. Uh, probably they're still waiting on my email. But uh, internally, I mean, I'm going to let them know. I mean, the communication takes, uh, you know, sometimes a little bit at uh, times. So, yeah, so... Doing it, do you hire recruiters to find those folks? Do, is it only through your own networking? You know? See, what you see on a resume and when you talk to people is very different. And <laughs> I'm a recruiter, believe me. Right? I mean, isn't it true? And since, like... Uh, in my field specifically, and I, I mean, that that is true to every researcher who's trying to hire a person. Uh, I mean, we look for somebody who's who really knows what we are doing. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is a clone of yourself or the other people on your team, basically. And uh, if, but that doesn't come about easily because, you know, I mean, two people work on the same project in the same field for five, ten years and if one of them leaves and goes, uh, it is a difficult uh, proposition to replace such a person. Yeah, no, so yeah. it's yeah. So you have to kind of uh, have the right match for the project and the person, and then the the rate of success is a little better, I guess. Right. And and for this particular project, did you advertise for the folks who were looking to work on it? Did, did you go through your own network? How do you go about finding those folks, or in this case, not finding them? No, I I knew this person. I mean, he had worked on with me a few years back on this on a similar project. So I really knew him, but he had gone and joined a, a startup in Arizona. And then he went to another company. So I, I just called him and I, I said, hey, I mean, these... F-. And and the people who have contacted us are like really, really up there and very important. Sure. You know, this company and, uh, and they know we are the only people who can do that kind of research. So they came back to us. But when I contacted this person, he was like, you know, it's difficult for me. I have a family now and all that kind of stuff. And he's one of the few people in the field that could do this, I, I imagine. At least the one yeah, uh, who I can just give the project to and don't have to kind of uh, wear a respirator and go in the in the laboratory to work. Because that is very important re- in research, right? I mean, when you somebody gives you a result, you you better be sure that, <laughs> you know, so it, it is the exact right thing because you're going to present it to somebody and some really important decisions and really, I mean, you know, diagnosis of a disease relies on that result. So and when you are trying to develop such a diagnostic or, and a device, that is really, really important. 
Well, we're, we're almost out of time and tremendous insights. We very much enjoyed this. It's such a unique experience for us because this is the first time we've had someone who's kind of come from, you know, the, the research scientist background and, 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 you know, commercialize those things on the way to commercializing them. But we always ask one last question, Saeed, of, of our guests. And that's kind of what, you know, kind of career and life advice would you give to someone? Maybe, you know, that's 10, 15, 20 years younger than you, maybe is in the research science field and is thinking about, you know, moving forward as you've done with, with commercializing it. What, what would you tell them? What kind of advice and direction would you give them if they're looking to maybe found their own company and, and run a, a similar type of operation as you do today? Uh, see, uh Loving research and loving what you do and making money uh, are mostly mutually exclusive. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Right. So, if you really love research and you are willing to put in time with no guarantee of, you know, uh, some huge economic success, I mean, which might come, I mean, who knows? I mean, if you really hit it big, you might really make it big. You might be a millionaire, a billionaire. But but it is very important to understand that the practicalities of life and how you manage your research have to be balanced out for a very large or extended period of time if you are moving from research to entrepreneur. So it's not a six months, a year or two year thing. Uh, it is probably, I would say, between a 10 and 20 year thing. So if you are willing to take that path, I mean, you will find a lot of satisfaction in, in, in your profession. You will feel accomplished in some way. It is not that there is going to be a hollow feeling, but, uh, but it is a, it is a good path. I mean, somebody has to do it, right? I mean, uh, somebody has to do good research for because money is important, but it is not everything. So uh, good luck to all. I mean, I would encourage people to do research and, you know, do good things because all the future discoveries are going to uh, depend on what you do in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Yeah, but that take the long term. Right, you got to play the long. Game. I think that uh, that is a good idea because that would not disappoint you, and yeah. you would have had enough time to at least have tested all the avenues that you you would think may or may not work. Yeah. Well, Saeed Barizuddin, Chief Executive Officer of Plasmonic Diagnostics, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you so much, Brandt. It was a pleasure talking to you and good luck to you. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.